Well, there is a British tradition that the Queen's flag flies from Buckingham Palace only when the Queen is in residence. And likewise, joy is the flag that indicates King Jesus is in residence in the palace of our hearts. The presence of Jesus always brings joy. But at times, that joy is tempered with sorrow. You see, the message of Philippians is that the flag of joy often flies at half-mast. The joy of the Lord is present even in the midst of trials and heartbreak. A believer's joy isn't dependent on happy circumstances. In tough times, there is still a joy to be had. Philippians is all about joy at half-mast. It's amazing that Paul's letter on joy begins with a couple of guys in jail. Chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. It's the year 62 A.D. Imagine Paul in a Roman prison awaiting his day in court before the evil emperor Nero. Whether he lives or dies is about to be decided. It could go either way. The book of Philippians is one of four letters along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon that we call the prison epistles. They were written during Paul's first incarceration in Rome. He's behind rusted bars and yet he's brimming with joy. It's joy from a jail cell. But I also want you to imagine this morning a doctor diagnosing a cancer. And yet, amazingly, God gives you a peace. Your boss hands you a pink slip. But you somehow know that God is in control. Your friend dies in a terrible accident. And yet you're sure, confident, that he or she is in a better place. Again, joy at half-mast is the theme of the book of Philippians. And how to experience that joy in the midst of any situation is the secret that gets revealed in these chapters. Well, Paul continues to write, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The town of Philippi was in the region of Macedonia in Greece. It was one of Paul's initial stops after sailing across the Aegean Sea from Turkey to Greece. Acts 16 recounts the birth of the church in Philippi. It was the first Christian assembly planted on European soil. And he writes to all the saints with the bishops and the deacons. Bishop means overseer, deacon means servant. And these were the two categories of leadership in the early church that helped the pastors. The bishops, or the elders we call them, concerned themselves with ministering to the spiritual needs of the saints or of the believers. Whereas the deacons were the designated doers, they served the physical needs of the fellowship. This is the way we order our church today. And to all the church, Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you know my daughter, Natalie, she has twins. She has a little boy and a little girl. And I loved Natalie's baby reveal. When we cut into her cake, half the slice of cake was pink and the other half of the slice of cake was blue. 
those two colors made up the same slice of cake. And this describes the gospel. It's a slice of blessing in two colors. Grace, love, unmerited love is what drew Jesus to the cross. Peace is what reigns in the aftermath. The gospel is all about grace and peace. And then he says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons Paul could rejoice, which means to take joy, When we rejoice, we take joy. The reason he could rejoice in any circumstance is he was confident that what God had started in his life, God would be faithful to finish. You know, I'm notorious for starting projects I never complete. (laughs) I hate to say it, but it's true. I have jobs that just keep rolling over to the next honeydew list, you know. But I'm not the only one. Michelangelo, you know Michelangelo, he was the great, he was a genius, he was a great sculptor, a wonderful painter. His statues of Moses and David are among the world's masterpieces. But did you know there's an entire museum in Florence, Italy, that's dedicated solely to the work, to the Michelangelo's unfinished works? Did you know that? The whole museum is his unfinished works. I could fill a museum with my unfinished works. I filled a garage. I can fill the museum. But this is not so with Jesus. For what Jesus starts, Jesus finishes. If you're discouraged this morning, if you've tried and failed before, take heart. Jesus hasn't begun a work in you to leave you high and dry. He doesn't abandon us in midstream. Jesus intends to hang in there with you so you hang on to him. Our Lord Jesus has no unfinished projects, and that includes you. He says in verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And I love this statement. That Paul makes here about the Philippians. I have you in my heart. You know Paul's life was full of joy. And here's one reason why. His priority was people. Not stuff. But people. Paul wasn't primarily concerned with the clothes on his back. Or the roof over his head. But with the people in his heart. See there's no lasting joy in perishable things. At his retirement party, a man once stated, As I look back on my career, my fondest memories are not of the money I made or the goals I accomplished, but the relationships I formed. And this was true of Paul. He says of the Philippians, Because I have you in my heart. See, life gets joyless, not when we encounter hardships, but when we go them alone. The road can be rough, but just don't let it get lonely. 
Keep people in your heart. And Paul prayed for his friends. And the next few verses actually constitute a model prayer that we can pray for one another. He begins, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. You know, as your pastor, I have the very real fear that the more you get to know me, the less you'll like me. This happens when you realize that I'm not the perfect pastor. He gets grumpy. Oh, my. He makes some mistakes. See, getting to know me is risky business. This is why to experience joy, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. For he is the only person of whom it can be said, the more you know him, the more you'll like him. Hey, Jesus has no downside. He is really cool all of the time. We need to recall this when we pray for a pal. All that keeps that person from falling head over heels in love with Jesus is getting to know him better. Our love for Jesus abounds as we grow in our knowledge of him. And then Paul also prays that you may approve the things that are excellent. You know, it's easy to choose the good from the bad. But it's far more difficult to pick out the best from the good. You know, when you first become a Christian, God calls you to clear out the evil from your life. To replace it with what's pure. You know, your choices are between good and bad, right and wrong. And those choices are pretty clear cut. But see, God wants more for us. Not just good things, but he wants for us the best that life can offer. It's been said the good is often the enemy of the best. You know, the good things can crowd out the best things. We settle on the good things rather than looking for the best things. This is why we all need to pray for the discernment to be able to pick out the things that are excellent. And also, we need to pray for a lingering, a lasting sincerity. He says that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. See, in every Christian's life, there is a gap between what we are and what we should be in everybody's life. And our goal should be always to shrink that gap. But over time, we tend to ignore the gap. Or we grow content with the gap as it is. Or we even deny that a gap exists. Now here Paul prays that God will keep the Philippians on the cutting edge. That they won't grow dull to either where they're at or where they need to be. That they'll be sincere. He prays that they would maintain a sincerity about their faith. And he continues his prayer, verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And praise of God. In other words, pray that your life is stamped with God's fingerprints. If they investigated your life, would they find God's fingerprints on you? Fruits of the Spirit, like love and joy and peace and good works, are the evidence that God's hand is on your life. Would they find His fingerprints on you? So to sum it up, here's what we should pray for one another. Pray that our love for Jesus abounds as our knowledge of him grows. 
Pray that we can discern the best from the good. Pray that we'll stay sincere. And pray that God's fingerprints fingerprints will be found all over our lives. And then he says in verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And here's another reason Paul rejoiced in difficulties. He knew God was in charge. God saw to it that Paul's prison time had advanced the gospel. God turned Paul's imprisonment into a platform. It actually gave him an opportunity to preach to the Roman soldiers, to the palace guard. Most of us would have been bummed out that we'd been thrown in jail. We'd be moaning and whining. We'd probably accuse God of abandoning us. We need to retrain ourselves to view our inconveniences as God's opportunities. Cliff Barrows was Billy Graham's right-hand man for 60 years. But it's interesting how they first teamed up. Barrows and his newlywed bride were on their honeymoon. They had scraped together enough money to buy some train tickets and some hotel reservations. But when they reached their destination, the hotel where they were supposed to stay had closed down. They managed to find a vacant room over the top of a grocery store. Well, the next day, the owner of the store, he heard Cliff playing Christian songs on his trombone. He told him about a rally that was being held that night. A young evangelist named Billy Graham was in town. And so Barrows decided to go. And that particular night, the man in charge of the music didn't show up. And so Cliff Barrows was asked to help. And of course, the rest is history. What seemed like a disaster was for the furtherance of the gospel. Hey, when you're delayed or when you get sidetracked, it could be that God is rerouting you for the furtherance of the gospel. Who knows who you'll come in contact with? Who knows you'll be able to share? He goes in verse 14 and he says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold now to speak the word without fear. Isn't this interesting? Paul's boldness had inspired other Christians to come out of the closet with their witness. You know, if Paul could witness behind bars, then they could do it openly. He says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul knew this sudden rash of Christian witness was coming from a mixture of motivations. You know, some of the preachers were been truly inspired by Paul. Well, if Paul can do it, we can too. While there were some others who figured that while Paul was out of commission, they could make a name for themselves. They saw his imprisonment as a chance to increase their own popularity. But Paul says an amazing thing in verse 18. He says, "What then?" Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. Paul was just happy that Jesus was being proclaimed. Understand, Paul is not suggesting here that motive doesn't matter in ministry. 1 Corinthians 3 teaches us that it's not just quantity 
or quality that matters when we serve the Lord. It's our motive behind our service. This is what truly matters. This is what determines our reward. God judges the heart behind our service. See, the right motives are a must as far as God is concerned. But the right motives may not be that important to the person receiving the ministry. For when the pure gospel is preached, people come to Christ, even if the preacher's motives are suspect. Isaiah 55 verse 11 reads, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is so powerful, and one of its proofs is its ability to shine despite some of the shady people who preach it. Sadly, not every pastor has the best of intentions. You remember, God even spoke to Balaam through the mouth of a donkey. And just because God chooses to use a person to share his truth doesn't mean that he's placing his stamp of approval on everything else that's going on in that person's life. It just means that God loves people. And he'll use even a jackass to save them and to heal them. Well, Paul continues. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit. Of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that if the Philippians pray, the Lord Jesus will bring deliverance. But Paul has a more important goal than just his deliverance. For he says in verse 20 According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Far more strategic to Paul than his deliverance from jail was his witness for Christ. His earnest expectation and hope, his utmost desire, is not to buckle under to the fear of death or to the pain of torture. Paul hopes to shine brightly for Jesus' sake until the last ray of light is extinguished from his candle. Whether he lives or dies, his goal is to magnify Jesus. For he says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I I love this line from the Living Bible. It reads, To me, living means opportunities for Christ and dying Well, that's better yet. Here's why Paul could take joy in every situation. All that mattered to him was Jesus. See, Paul had placed all of his eggs in one basket. Jesus wasn't just a piece of the pizza called Paul's life. He was the cheese that covered the whole pizza. Jesus is the big cheese. You know that, don't you? Everything else in Paul's life gained significance only as it related to Jesus. Jesus was all that mattered to this man. Even Paul's survival paled in comparison to the magnification of Jesus. If he lived, he could be used for Christ's glory. Good. If he died, he would see Jesus face to face even better. You can't lose when Jesus is all that matters to you. 
in the movie The Wind and the Lion. It's a great movie. Sean Connery, he plays the Razuli. He's the leader of the Berber bandits that fight to resist American and Western imperialism in the deserts of Morocco. At the end of the movie, the Razuli's army gets trounced. I mean, he gets annihilated. And in the final scene, he and his right-hand man, they're riding horseback on the beach. When his sidekick moans, he says, Razuli, we've lost everything. All is drifting on the wind, just as you said. We've lost everything. And with a roguish laugh, the Razuli replies, and I got the clip for you. Drifting on the wind, just as you said. We have lost everything. Sharif, is there not one thing in your life that was worth losing everything for? <laughs> you gotta watch the movie. But but did you hear the line? Did you hear what he said? He says, ah. Isn't there one thing in your life worth losing everything for? What if I ask you that question this morning? Does your life have one big overarching purpose that dwarfs everything else? If you're a Christian, it should. There is a cause that transcends even life and death to magnify Christ. Let me ask you to fill in the blank. To live is blank. How would you answer that question? To live is work? To live is success? Friends? Kids? Sports? Sex? Hobbies? Popularity? Security? Pleasure? Work that lacks fulfillment? Really? Success that's just temporary? Are you kidding me? Friends that come and go, kids that grow up and leave you, sports that you can't play forever, sex that leaves you empty and ashamed, hobbies that grow boring, popularity that's fickle, security that's just an illusion. Are these things really worth your one and only life? Listen to Paul's words again. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul would go anywhere, do anything for Jesus. No sacrifice was too great. And ironically, no one lived a fuller, more satisfying, more joyful life than the Apostle Paul. In verse 22, Paul weighs out his options here. He says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two I'm having a hard time deciding here. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. It's be in heaven or it's be a help here on earth. Death would be heavenly, but to live would mean more opportunities to magnify Jesus. You know, I'm not sure you can live life to the fullest until you're first ready to die. For Paul, heaven was just around the bend. He knew it. Whatever he endured on earth was as bad as it would ever be for him. He was headed to heaven. He could do anything for a short time for Christ's sake. 
He says, in being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ, Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. After thinking it through, Paul was confident that he would be released. He felt he still had work to do on earth. He was even planning another trip to bless the Philippians. But whether he makes that visit or not, he exhorts these Philippians. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm, ab- or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. Notice this, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul wants them to stand fast, to stand together, and to stand up for the gospel. The word translated striving here, it speaks of strenuous effort. Effort that pushes beyond exhaustion. He's saying we need to leave it all on the field for the gospel. You know, I played high school football when I was younger. And high school football is a dreadful sport. You practice five days a week for 16 weeks to play just 10 games. You endure a sweltering summer, rigorous exercise, the risk of injury, and for what? There's no pay. There's little recognition. But why does a high school kid do it? See, it's because when everyone pulls together and that horn sounds, there's a joy that swells up inside. Even if your team doesn't always win, you still belong to something bigger than yourself. And that's important to a high school kid. That sense of unity and accomplishment, it's worth all the sacrifice. And you see, this is the joy that you find in church when you really give it a try. So you come week after week, you give an offering, you serve somewhere with little or no recognition, you put up with the heat of conflict and you run the risk of getting hurt perhaps. And why do you do it? Because when we all click and God gets magnified, In big or little ways, there is incredible joy. You are a part of a team that's bigger than yourself. And there's fulfillment in that. See, joy comes when we stand fast and when we stand together and when we stand up for Jesus. And when we do, we're not afraid, verse 28, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Now I'm not sure the Philippians saw opposition and persecution as an honor as Paul did. And this is where the modern church This is the truth the modern church denies, for sure. Oh, we claim that prosperity is the birthright of the believer. That faith should make life easier, not harder. That's not what Paul taught. That's not what you read in the New Testament. No, to suffer for Jesus' sake is also a reason to take joy. For suffering is as much a badge of honor as is salvation. He continues in chapter 2. He says, Therefore, 
If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and in Christ there is an abundance of all the above, joy comes not from our circumstances, but from Christ's work in our heart. Our comforts are not situational, they're spiritual. And since God is working in you, Paul encourages the church, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Years ago, there was a small rural community that met to decide a name for their village. But differing opinions surfaced, and tempers arose. The meeting grew quite contentious. Finally, someone pounded the table and shouted out, Let's have harmony! And the word just kind of hung in the air. Until someone saw its relevance, and just like that, the town got its name. Harmony, Minnesota. We'll find out here in Philippians chapter 4 a little later that all was not well in the church at Philippi. That there were some sisters squabbling in the fellowship. Can you imagine? And here Paul is shouting, let's have harmony. Let's focus on Jesus. and Be of the same mind and of the same heart. And here is the formula for harmony in a church. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let's put aside selfish ambition and let's esteem one another. Let's seek to serve rather than be served. And where would we get such an idea? Well, notice verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Here's the Phillips translation of verse 5. He says, For he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage. See, Jesus was God. He's the top of the heap. You think you're something. Jesus is better. He's bigger than you. Jesus was God. But he stripped himself of the advantages of being God, and he became a servant. He became fully human. The word translated made, it means emptied. He laid aside the clout and privileges of being God. When Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God, but he emptied himself of his divine privileges and advantages. And Jesus took the form of a bondservant, literally a slave. The great composer Leonard Bernstein was once asked, what's the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play? He replied, the second fiddle. He says, I can get plenty of first violinists, But to find someone who can play second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. Jesus deserved honor and pleasure and glory. And yet he laid aside all of that to work out a salvation for you and me. And Jesus came, we're told, in the likeness of men. A few years ago, I ran across a description of what life would be like in America 
if our next president were a dog? <laughs> Might be a good idea. But all public buildings would suddenly have a doggy door. The title Mr. President would become, here fella. The Washington Monument would be replaced with a 100-story fire hydrant. And I like the last one. A new law would pass requiring everyone to drive with their head hanging out of the window. (laughs) In other words, if the next president were a dog, you'd have to be a dog. Or you'd have to become a dog to understand his policies and to embrace their relevance. And likewise, for God to grasp the ethos and the feelings of the human predicament, he had to become a man. He had to become one of us. Jesus was God in human flesh. The Almighty God got down on our level. He identified with our struggles. In Christ, he let us know just how much he cares. And he says in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a what? As a man. Hey, notice when God came to earth, he took a Y chromosome. He became a man, not a woman. Jesus is now the man that all men were meant to be. And here is his greatest act of masculinity. He humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This was history's manliest moment. God's strength was on display throughout the Old Testament. But on the cross, in Jesus, God revealed to us his humility. See, what made Jesus the man above all men wasn't that he dished out pain and enforced his will. But that he endured pain to accomplish God's will. He was capable of costly obedience. This is the DNA of a real man. This is the mark of true manliness. Is he willing to endure costly obedience? And then he says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the end, God will exalt all of the humble. And he'll start with Jesus, the humblest of all. The one who descended so low will be exalted to the highest. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Hey, you'll either bow your knee willingly or he'll bow them for you. But in the end... Every knee will bow to our Lord Jesus. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And here's Christianity in a nutshell. We work out what God works in. You and I are never required to work for or work on our salvation. You remember Jesus' last breath. He said, it is finished. God worked for us and in us on the cross. His spirit plants in us new desires and new strength and new dexterity. God works in us 
both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But what God works in us spiritually, we're to work out practically. We apply these new desires that God gives us to our everyday life. You see, there is a, there's God's part, and then there's also my part. It's been said, man can do nothing without God, and God will do nothing without man. See, God revs up the engine, but then you have to let off the brake and pop it into gear. God puts in you the life of Christ. Then you take on the mind of Christ. God changes me, but then I change my mind. God lights the spark, but then I begin to steer. This is working out your salvation. God works in, then you work out. This means believe deeply. This means believe sincerely. And then start living out what you believe. For he says in verse 14, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Once differing battalions of Maryland firefighters from neighboring counties, they arrived on the scene of a burning house. They got there simultaneously. And it was unclear as to which battalion had jurisdiction over this particular house. And so a fight ensued among the firefighters over who was responsible for putting out the fire. An irony of all ironies. The house burned to the ground while the firemen fought with each other. And this is the story of too many churches. We argue with each other while hell rages. Paul continues, he says, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, everywhere people gather today, squabbles erupt. I think the most obvious way for Christians to stand out is to just simply get along. We need to shine, and we shine brightest, verse 16, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Here's the best way for us to preserve our unity and to stay like-minded. Keep your nose in this book. Keep your heart in the Word of God. Yes, and I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. I love this illustration here. You see, in the Old Testament, a drink offering was poured out on the sacrifice to soften and season the meat. But once it was applied, it wasn't seen again. It was no longer seen. The sauce was absorbed into the meat. The only one who then appreciated its taste was the one who ate the sacrifice. Spiritually speaking here, the Philippians were the sacrifice. And Paul was the seasoning. He was the steak sauce, you might say. The meat tenderizer. And he had willingly poured out his life into the Philippians with no desire for recognition. He didn't mind if only God tasted his contribution. And this is the kind of influence that we need to have on one another. Do we tenderize each other? Do we add flavor to each other's lives? And do we do it in a way that only God notices? We should. 
Let's all be A1 servants of the Lord. (laughs) Verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Timothy knew Paul's heart and was trusted to represent Paul well. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. And sadly, Christian ministry attracts more than its share of inflated egos. Even in Paul's day, Timothy, though, was not one. He could be trusted. For you know his proven character, he says, that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. In the early church, Timothy was a well-known commodity. Paul had led him to Christ and was a spiritual dad to this young Timothy. He says, therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Paul is going to send Timothy to Philippi and he hopes he'll be coming after him soon. Then verse 25, yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Now, in the Roman prison system, if you ate or if you were clothed, it was up to your friends and family who cared for you. See, jail in a Roman jail wasn't a guaranteed bed and prison suit and color TV and three square meals. No, if the folks on the outside forgot about you, (laughs) you went hungry, man. You were just cold. And apparently the Philippians had sent Paul provisions through a messenger named Epaphroditus. Now, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now it seems while in Rome, Epaphroditus had gotten seriously sick. And notice this. Paul, the great great healer, the great faith healer, was powerless to help his buddy. Certainly Epaphroditus' illness was not the result of some sin in his life. In fact, he got ill doing the will of God. And realize, despite what some preachers today say, believers are not immune to sickness and disease. See, God has left us in a fallen world. We inhabit fleshly and fallen bodies. That means we're subject to sin's effects. And here, it's interesting, all Paul can do is pray for his pal. Epaphroditus' recovery wasn't credited to some miracle or some gift of healing. No, Paul says God had mercy on him. God saved him. Chapter 2 closes. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death. He almost died, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. You know, sometimes what we think are the simplest tasks end up being the most threatening. 
Epaphroditus was just a courier. His job was to carry supplies to Paul. Simple enough. And yet he almost died doing it. He got sick and he'd almost meant his life. His distinguishing trait was that he persevered. Epaphroditus finished his mission. And you know, that's being like Jesus. For remember chapter 1 verse 6. We'll close here. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Never forget what he started in your life. He intends to finish. And it's that same perseverance that we need to use when we go about serving him. And there we have Philippians chapters 1 and 2. So for next week, I encourage you this coming week to read Philippians chapter 3 and 4. How about that?